0: Emily's teacher today. This is our um, seventh Sunday in these Psalms of Ascent that we've been walking through. And these psalms are psalms of people sort of moving their way up to Jerusalem to be with God. These are, these are the psalms that these pilgrim people would sing on this journey as they went towards this place. And so we've been walking and journeying with these psalms. With a with a couple challenges before us, one is to sort of begin to pray the psalms, to bring the psalms into our prayer life. If Jesus had a prayer book, or Jesus did have a prayer book, <laughs> and it was the psalms, um, and that's why at pivotal moments in Jesus's life you see him quoting from the psalms, most notably on the cross. Um, and so Jesus has this way of sort of being one who inhabited the psalms, and so I think it's good and wise for us to be a people who also. Psalms. Part of it is they give us a a wider language for God. It gives us great sadness. It gives us great highs of joy. It gives us great places to sort of live in our emotional space before God in a wide and vast way. It's oftentimes we live our prayer lives very narrow and very small, and we feel like God is too big for some of our concerns. But if you pray the Psalms, you'll find that almost every concern, if you make it into your context, in some ways, is enumerated in the Psalms. And these are places in which we can live and read these Psalms together. The second sort of thing that we've been thinking about as we go through the Psalms is not just how to incorporate them into our prayer life, but with these Psalms of Ascent in particular, how do we sort of move towards God? How do we sort of find our way as pilgrims together, as those who are being drawn into God's new Jerusalem, God's new Holy Land, in which um, death Tears will be wiped away and death will be extinguished. And God's renewal will take place. But in some sense, through our baptisms and becoming one with Jesus Christ, we have a glimpse of that, but that we are not there yet. And so we as a people are moving towards that in the world. That's the pace at which we're walking. One of the things, and nobody's complained about Augustine or uh, Augustine yet, so we're going to keep going with that. I recently, maybe I didn't explain this in the beginning, I recently... um, uh last, when we started the series, I purchased his expositions on the Psalms. And I've been reading them as we walk through this. And what he says, I think, helps name many things that we miss. Now, he was a uh, a man who lived in the 4th century in Africa, um, became a Christian late in life. His most famous book is The Confessions. His next most famous book is City of God. Confessions is credited with starting both psychotherapy and memoir. So if you like memoirs, and by some weird circumstance, you like therapy, um, you can credit Augustine for that in some weird ways. But, um, so we've been, I've been reading through those, and they've been edifying for my soul and self. And so on the back of the bulletin today, we have a quote from him on sort of how we're walking this way. He says, you must not attempt to climb with your feet, nor must you think that it is on foot that you will descend. For you ascend by loving God and fall by loving the world. These psalms are therefore the songs of lovers, a fire with holy longing. All who sing them from the heart are on fire too, and their burning hearts are revealed in their way of life, in their good conduct, in their good conduct, their severe, their sincere observance of God's commandments, their refusal to set much store by fleeting things of time, and their love for things eternal. But Augustine, as he's, he's preaching to his congrega- congregation in northern Africa, is calling out that you don't make this path by foot anymore. And I think it's also true, as I've been saying, that the early Jews who prayed these psalms didn't make it by foot either. While they went to Zion, while they went to Jerusalem, while they were on this march, what they were also naming is this place where God's reign is true today so that it might fully reign someday. They didn't have this bizarre observance that, like, if God is fine in Jerusalem, then the world is fine. If God is fine in Jerusalem, then Israel is fine. But Israel's mission was always to be for the world. And so as they went to, they have this notion of that they're not quite just going to this place, but they're looking at something far off. And so we don't just ascend with our, our hearts or with our feet. We ascend with our hearts by loving God, by moving towards God and the world. But before we start this Sunday, I wanted to, to sort of go back to a phrase that came to us earlier in this journey is that there's disorder and that there is order. It was in a commentary on Psalm 21, I suggested that we are a people who proclaim God's love for the world, which is not that shocking, but that we claim that God desires for this world to be rightly ordered. And so we exist in a world that has disorder. all around us. It doesn't take long to see this in the world. And you can pick your favorite spots, and you can expand to different spots, but one of the ways I think in which we see this disorder itself is the ways in which we are sort of captive to technological solutions to almost every problem we have. It's almost as if this is the way in which life goes. I don't know about you, but I was recently in a place where my cell phone didn't work, and I still had this tendency to check it. Nobody knows why that exists in our minds other than we're addicted to those things. But disorder comes in other ways. We see it in war and violence, both uh, foreign and at home, the violence that can reign in homes. We see it in addiction. We see it in the ways in which our world is pulled apart. And so one of the things that I think about for Defiance Church, our, our family, is we sort of move to sort of, I think as my journey this past fall, sort of self-designing us, self-defining us in, in interesting ways, is what does it mean to be a people who proclaims God loves for the world, but that proclaim that God desires that to be ordered, rightly ordered. Now, one of these psalms, Psalms 127, which we'll get into, it, is a uh, has this word of advice for workaholics. Um, it says that those who labor and toil, those who are always doing these things, they do so in vain. And one of the things that, that Christians have this ability to do in the world because of Psalm 121 and because of what Hampton from Jesus is teaching about anxiety is we have this ability to sort of not always need more, not always drive for more, not always be after more. And so one of the ways that our homes can be ordered places is through accepting that these are sort of the limits in which life is made. There, there are limits to what humans are. In both these psalms, there's a suggestion of what the good life is, and we'll talk about that. But the good life is not like having your own castle and having much land and ruling over people. It's actually domestic in its space. So one of the things on our, our church webpage, I we haven't talked about as much here, is that we, we look at homes as sort of domestic churches, domestic ecclesias, domestic places of order. And when we went through sort of what our liturgy, what the shape of our worship is at Defiance Church, is I try to argue that that's a way in which we compress into the world. We read scripture here together, and in a smaller or larger way, we read scripture at home together. We pray together here for the concerns and the disorder and dysfunction of the world. And so, too, we pray in our homes as this sort of is, um, if you want to think of it as a as the eye of a hurricane is that what we have in a church and the disciplines that we practice at home spin out of that place. So, reading in scripture, we feast at the table of the Lord here in communion, and we all have tables at home. This table is a place of hospitality. So, too, may our homes and tables be places of hospitality for other people. And so, this is the way in which we sort of Aim to be a people of order in a world of disorder, to find a place for us to be. Now, this is one of the Sundays where we're tackling two psalms at the same time. It was not good for me because many of the commentators pointed out that there is, that the first psalm might be two different wisdom sayings. And the next psalm is divided into weird segments as well, which means I try to follow the nature of which the scripture is ordered when I preach. And so when it's well-ordered, my sermons tend to be ordered better. When the scripture is less ordered, uh, I don't intentionally try to mirror that in my preaching, um, although it isn't necessarily unwise to say if this is what we're dealing with is this sort of thing. Um, Then my sermons tend to be more scattershot as well. All that I say just to prepare you for a little bit of scattered shot today as we walk through 127 and 128. Two psalms that I think are similar in some ways and different in other ways. But Psalm 127, which we'll start with, contains this idea that we work in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches or guards over the city, the guards stand in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. That in this sort of instance, it uses this phrase, in vain three times. In vain we do these things, in vain these things. And what the psalm is calling out for us is these godless activities we go about. Now, we have two temptations, I think, as is. There's an eastern-west divide here, and, and it's a sacred-secular divide as well, perhaps, is that we have this temptation to say that, that we should be people who just work and work very hard. And this is where I think our particular Protestant notion of becoming workaholics sets in. This for us to be people who work endlessly and tirelessly. Now, Paul, in the letter to Thessalonians, has this phrase, for those people who don't work, they shall not don't. Eat, in some sense, is what he says. Which is a weirder thing that I just realized now, but need more explanation. So, that makes sense, think about it. If it doesn't make sense, let it go. Um, Not trying to starve people to death in that context. Um, But, there's this way in which God has ordained work for people. Work is good. But, in our disorderedness, and our disorderedness loves, we can take what God has ordained in good and make ourselves slaves to it. And so we as Protestants have this notion, we as Christians have this notion oftentimes in which we should be people who work and work and work because that's what God has ordered for us and ordaining work is a good thing. Forgetting that God ordained the seventh day for us to rest. That God is for our work, but God is also for our rest. Even in the garden, we are supposed to to sort of... um, have this space in the world that is good in order for us to work. And in this function, it becomes more painful, but it wasn't not there before the fall in some ways. There was this place for us to till, to work in the world. So we have this workaholic tendency. The second thing, which I think potentially is creeping through our world more, is this notion that work is is sort of... Uh, secular, not sacred. It's it's of the world. And so we should retreat from it as best as we can. This is maybe what Paul is dealing with in the letter to the Thessalonians. He said, we should not work. We should sort of find ways to find our position without these things. We see this temptation often um, arising sort of in our world in the sense in which that work that somehow is not a gift from God. But it's something we should flee from. And So this work is, in, in some ways in this, becomes dirty. It becomes, there's there's a bit of a uh, temptation to deny the flesh in this, is that anything that we do with our bodies isn't good. We need to go off and we need to pray and we need to go off and do these things. And if you're thinking about monks, monks have very ordered work lives. It's more um, a temptation to say that these things are not for us. Work is just attack on life. But that's not the case here. But what the psalmist says is that we do these things in vain if God is not in them. We become workaholics. We become overworked because we think that it all depends on us, us, that we sort of um, try to toil for food, toil in the world. Now, if you're following along in your Bible verse, for those who don't know, I preach from a Bible without verses, which makes this hard. So verse two, I think, toiling for food to eat is a reference back almost to the curse, is that... I will set before them, they'll have this way of toiling in the world for their food to eat. But what the psalmist says, and this is God's sort of pattern, is that that's not entirely true. God still provides in his providence for us. God still does work for us. God, as he's one who guards and watches, is one who provides for us. And so this is what this sort of notion of which we toil in this way for food to eat. One of the ways that this, um, is translated or can be phrased is they eat work for the bread of anxiety. Now, I don't think it's a shock to say that we live in anxious times. Um, there's some evidence that suggests that we live in a very good time with less things to be anxious about than almost ever. And yet we live lives of ramped up anxiety. We live anxious lives in many ways. Um. And this shows up in in the ways in which the world sort of, I think, tries to prey upon us. Now, if you have um, news alerts turned on on your smartphone, you get bizarre updates all the time, and it's almost impossible to find out what happened afterwards. Not to make light of this, but on my computer, I've turned them off on my phone because I don't like them. But on the computer, sometimes I'll get them, and they'll say that there's, and this is not to make light of this at all. It'll say that there's an active shooter in some place in the country, and I'll look up to find out where that is. And then within 30 seconds, that news is gone. Like half the time, it's not followed up on. It's never there again, and yet we get these pings and tings that come from our technology that are telling us there are things to be worried about nonstop, and they ramp up our anxiety. It happens in interpersonal ways, too, is that there's this notion in which I, don't talk to my parents as much as I should. Guilty as charged. Um, but sometimes when they call me twice in a row, my instant assumption is things, something went wrong. I better answer at that time, which my mother has learned. I don't answer the first time I call in. College. And I'll be like, did grandma die? No, I just wanted to connect. Uh, be, well, I can't hear you. Uh, no, I, I love my parents. Um, uh, too much information. Um, but we have this, this way in which anxiety sort of preys on us in the world, and we've built that into our system. And there's this phrase that this um, uh, psychologist, uh, not a Christian, came up with, that said what we need today, and this was back in the late 90s, is we need non-anxious presences. If you're going to be a family member, leading an organization, be a part of the world, uh, a is in the back, but Shelley's a principal, like, if you're going to lead these sort of institutions, part of it is is nothing good happens when the leader of something is acting anxiously. The healthiest person in almost every system, family system, work system, this thing, is he often said was the non-anxious one, the one who could relax, the one who could breathe in the world. What the Psalm says about those of us who toil in vain, but that those who are workaholics, that those who are pressed harder and harder, is that that's all not it if God isn't in it. Not only that, there's this way in which God is, needs to be in it for it to be successful. We need to be able to go to sleep. God gives these people sleep. So, one of the challenges for us as the people of Defiance Church is to be non-anxious presences in the world, to not respond to every ting of news, not to respond to every sort of... um, It seems to happen a lot of politics today, um, but it can happen in very many others, to not be people driven by the next thing that's coming in our lives, but to be people who don't exist anxiously. The one who lives the good life in these two songs is one who trusts in the providential care of God, trusts in the care of God to be with. That's where wisdom sort of resides in this context. And being and knowing from God who this is. And so the challenge for us, and if you're the type of person who likes acronyms, I I invented this, not proudly, but if you uh, take the first letter of each, it's NAP, um, Which is totally uh, not helpful, helpful, maybe. Um, to be a non-anxious presence is to be a person who can take a nap. Um, who doesn't need to be driving for more and more always in the world. You can read that metaphorically if you're not a habit, um, uh, to just say that, that we are people who can sleep, who can rest knowing that God's care is there, who can rest in the goodness of which we know God has before us. And the psalmist um, in these instances is not um, in denial that there are problems in the world. If you live this way, then all good things will happen to you. But I think the psalmist, in, and this is in 128, it says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to Him. In Psalm 1, it says something similar, It that happy are the people who walk in the Lord. And it has this equation that it, it, it works. Now, in the church today, we have churches um, or places of the prosperity gospel, and it's all, I think, as people of the book, we are tempted to say this when we get to these texts is that if you live this way, it works. If you listen to the Proverbs, if you do this. And the fact of the matter is we've all seen enough in our lives to know that, that these things fall apart sometimes. But what the church has always sort of held together and proclaimed is that even in suffering, even in darkness, even in times of trial, you want to sleep at night, If you want to rest, you've got to hear and trust in God's care. Now, this is is not to say that all things will go fine for us. as We know that all things don't go fine for us. But it's to say that even as things go wrong, if we ramp up our anxiety, and there are things um, that are worth ramping up your anxiety over in the world. Um, There's a psychologist that I like who says people— come to him and they say, well, I think I'm depressed. And he goes, well, what's going on? And they're like, well, my mother died. Um, I found out my son's addicted. And something else, um, uh, I got fired. He was like, well, you're not depressed. You're dealing with some very, very difficult things. You're responding appropriately to this situation. So this isn't to say that to be a non-anxious presence in the world is to deny reality. There are times where we're oppressed in ways in which our anxiety there are times in which it seems that if we fear the Lord and walk obediently, that these things don't um, compute. But at the same time, it's there these in those spaces this will work for us, that we will find that God has cared for us, that, that God will work in the world for us. And so the challenge for us um, is to be a people who can sleep, to know that God is one who is gifted with the ability to fall and to rest. And there's this um, tension between these two psalms around eating. In Psalm 127, it's the ones who toil for the bread of anxiety. They toil for the eating of all their work. They toil in that way. But in the second psalm, Psalm 128, it says, But you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. There's this way in which people can begin to sort of sit and enjoy what God has given them. And this, I... We think of aware. I can't think of it. I should think of these things in advance. I always hope they come to me on my feet, they normally do. But I'll, I'll give an example that maybe is not true for me, but it could be true for someone. So, this is an ante- antidote. Is that what they call these? Ante- 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 antidote. Yeah, tell me if this is one of those. Okay, so you can imagine a person who works very, very hard to get a car to achieve. The car of their dreams. They work hard and harder and harder to get. And when they get it, they can't actually enjoy it. I I can't think of a place where that's happened in my life, but there are things where I've been like, I've aimed for something. I've sought something. I've gone off of it after it hard enough. And when I finally achieve the thing, it's just sort of not there. It didn't provide the comfort and joy I thought it would. Or there's, there's almost a worse temptation which in which you travel and travel and push after those things, and when you finally get it, you can only guard it. You can't actually enjoy it. You have to make sure nobody touches it, nobody dents it, nobody gets near it. You just only have to protect it because it represents something more than it should. It becomes almost like this false thing you've worked in The person, the workaholic, the person who toils day and night, thinking that this is how the world works and how things are achieved. The person who can't Sabbath and rest in the gift that God has given us is the person who, when they achieve the thing, it's just the bread of anxiety. I guess this was fine, but where does it come from tomorrow? Or what's better than this? What can I get after this? What's the next thing I can seek? And it's, in these psalms, we find this picture of, of, of domesticity. Domesticity? Domestic life? Far- <laughs> domesticity. Domesticity. I have a friend, Kay, who works with me on stuff for this church. And he always tells me, Matt, people think you are like ten times more brilliant than you are. Or, or, as brilliant as you are is the way he says it, because he thinks I'm very smart. If you could just pronounce words correctly. <laughs> uh, uh, which... I don't know why I can't, but uh, I try. Better to be humble. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah. I can't imagine what I would do in the world if people actually thought I was smart. That would be horrible. I would just take advantage of that. So it's a way in which I become less. Um, I don't know what it is with words. But anyways, they have this picture of the home life. I'll just use, is that what Elmer Fudd does? He can't say something, so he switches to another word. So they have this picture of this home life. It's not a life that's driven out into the world. It's this picture of, of a life within the home, domestic life, and say that word, um, that is where goodness resides. It's the eating of the meal that you've worked for. For some, it's the eating of anxiety. For others, it's the eating of the goodness that God has provided. It's eating in the presence of God's goodness for our lives so we have this tension between the two types of eating in this psalm. And so those who work and labor will, will do so in vain. Um, those who um, um, who live this sort of way, who trust in the providence of God, I think will have this ability to be sort of non-anxious presences. The last sort of thing, which I didn't want to talk about, want to talk about, is both these psalms have references to, to kids. Now, uh, the the, the quiverful Christianity, is anybody familiar with that phrase? Who practices that? What's the show? 19, 19 and counting. Um, and they actually have 19 kids. Wow. Um, that's the Duggars. I meant to put up a picture, but then I was like, oh, I'm not an ad for TV shows. So, um, so this is one of the verses that they take that from. Uh, which is interesting because it's just a reference to sons. How many boys does he have? Please tell me one. Ugh. So I'd say it's failing for them if that was the case. Um, but uh, it's it's this notion in which they take the psalm and say that having lots of children is what God has designed for us, and so we have to have lots of children. There There's some tensions here that first I want to point out. One is that Defiance Church, we try not to do Mother's Day or Father's Day. Um, and the reason for that is is because while kids kids are a good gift from God, they're not all that life has been made out to be. And there are those of us who can't have kids or won't have kids through other circumstances that are beyond our control. And I think that those Sundays are merely just sort of pointing out the absences that are there. And yet there's there's also a truth, which is in scripture, which I think we have a temptation that we can forget, if we just say that that's true, is that kids are a gift from God. Kids are goodness given in creation. Kids are things that we are supposed to be open to in our hospitality in the world. And the craziest thing is is that in the modern world, we have both these temptations laid before us. You know, if you follow, um, if you're an anxious person following rate of replacement, does anybody know what that that phrase (laughs) means? It's the amount of kids you need to have to sort of keep your society going, which apparently is like two and a half. And apparently we are way below, we're getting further and further below rate of replacement. And so instead of overpopulation that's going to kill us all, it's underpopulation. So something else to be anxious about if you're an ancient person. <laughs> I don't think this is predominantly true, but this is one of the things that you can think about more. That we have more and more smaller families, which is a weird thing, but we also have that kids are sort of this ultimate good in which people dump all their money into, dump all their time into. They're supposed to be the most brilliant thing ever. We need to get them into three thousand dollar year preschools so that they can do all. These. We exist in this sort of widening gap between that kids are this good gift, and then the kids aren't a gift at all. Um, even these people and people who live this way, I think, think that their kids are a gift, but they only become slaves to them. It's the same thing with the car that we talked about. You just work harder and harder on this one thing to make them this little project, and that's not what kids are meant to be. Then we have a whole, I mean, it's been a thing lately of people who don't want to have kids because of what it might do to the environment. And it was I was hanging out with my parents recently, and it was a rough night for one of my kids and another kid wasn't going to sleep, and I was like, lack of imagination if your only reason for not having kids is the environment. Um, yeah. There are plenty of reasons. That kids are more challenging than than the environment. Um, uh, But note to self, easy out if you want to use it. Um, uh, I don't want kids because I'm worried about the environment. They're much more challenging than that. Um, And so we have this sort of widening gap between these things. The kids need to be, if we have them, these sort of projects that we just sort of focus on. And we almost forget that they're a gift. They're just something we toil for. In the same way, we have this sort of, uh, of of gap, of which in which kids are becoming sort of more. Um, maybe people who don't have kids are seeing this rightly, but th- that they're ornaments on our lifestyle. I don't need that ornament on my lifestyle. Neither one is the correct answer to these things. Now, if you want to know about the quiverful Christianity in this, um, it seems to be saying that the children in home house, which we started with, unless. The house is built in vain. It could be a a synonym for home, like literal houses you build, a family, like that which you gain, or the temple um, or the church in that matter. And so we have this way in which we labor for the church. We labor so that these kids, it's not just an individualized family that's happening here. This works in, in three different spheres if you read it that way. But they, they go to the, the town gate with all his sons, which is really just an intimidation tactic. That man who has lots of sons can go to the town disputes and he will most often have better luck there because he brings the domestic army with him, I guess, is sort of what this, this psalm is saying. And so you have to wonder, in a world that doesn't solve disputes that way, um, if you should be using that as your proof text for why you should have lots of kids. Okay. Um, probably not. Um, Although today you would probably get more sympathy. Those are all your kids. Um, you must not have slept for 20 years. Um, um, and the second one, these kids and this wife are like a fruitful vine and olive shoots around your table. It's, the, it's saying is that these are, are the organic gifts that come from the goodness of life. You can read these sort of as proof texts for what your life should be, or you can read them as what comes from pursuing wisdom to God. But I would warn you that if you read them as proof texts, they're more likely to become difficulties and trials for you as you try to achieve this, rather than they are to become gifts. To read them as if they were gifts for you is the proper way, I think, to go around this. And so the last psalm finishes with this benediction: May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of life, and may you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. One last thing about kids. Funny enough, Saint Augustine says that in the early church saw higher both of chastity and of singleness than than we do today. I think that was one of the things. And so, and they thought uh, thought higher of martyrdom. Bring that back, right? Um, uh, They thought higher of those two things. One of the things that this sort of comes out to mean for them is that the children are the good works of obeying God. And the children's children are the fruit of those good works. You can read these in very flat ways, but I think there's something beautiful in that for all of us, kids or not. What is the, the offspring of being walking in the ways of the Lord. It's the gift of the good works that come out of your life. What is the offspring of that is the fruit of those good works. It's a way to live in the world in such a way. And, and the reason why I think this is important is because if this is really the good life, then Jesus is not an embodier of this song. He died young. He had no kids. was never married. Um, and so it, it must be come to mean something else, because I think the Psalms need to understand the wise life that Jesus lives. Um, In a bizarre interpretation, the falling asleep in the early church meant that uh, as God took Adam from Eve's side, when Christ goes to uh, death on Saturday, he takes the church from his side. um, which is Because the church is his bride. Um, There's an interesting picture of what this is. But the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is the final point, is distressing in divine blessing. And in this phrase, which comes in as these Beatitudes and other translations now, is happy. The think is good and bad. Happy is the one who does these things. And there's a great TED Talk by Dan Gilbert, um, in which he talks about how happiness is actually less things that happen to you and more synthetic than that. I'll put it in the email this week if you get it so that you can listen to this TED Talk. What he does is he points out all these people. One of them, most likely, is a guy who spent 25 years in prison, wrongly accused of a crime. And he gets out, and they say, aren't you very um, bitter about this? Aren't you angry about this? All the things you would expect. And he said, no, it was the best thing that ever happened to me." Um, the guy who misses out on the Beatles, the original drummer, does anybody know his name? Um, I can't remember his name. There was a drummer they had that they kicked out for various different reasons. But he says he's having a better life than he had if he had ever been in the Beatles. The, the another guy he points out in the TED Talk is, is a guy who early, wanted to early invest in McDonald's but his bank turned him down. And he thinks he's having a better life. What point is, is that happiness, we tend to think about as circumstantial happiness. And circumstantial happiness doesn't last very long. But synthetic happiness, what you make out of what happens to you, is actually the deeper, more lasting time. To be a person who can pray Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 is to find that what comes from God, that comes from this non anxious way in which we can be in this world, allows for us to have a synthetic sort of happiness. It's not just circumstantially, look at what happened to me, am I happy or not? But it's this deeper joy, this deeper peace. It comes in being connected to the true vine. It comes from knowing God. It comes from being drawn into these places. Let us pray. God, you...